Well, happy new year, uh, 2023. Can you believe it? <laughs> uh, 2023, new year is uh, typically a time to, um, to re- reset, resolve, recommit. How many of you make New Year's Eve, uh, New Year's resolutions? One of you in the back, <laughs> kind of-ish. That's okay, you don't have to. Uh, I don't exactly either, uh, but in, in all of you know, our recommitment of in our lives, so whatever it might be, to read more books or to read the Bible more or to pray more or to exercise more, the goal in it all is, is faithfulness. And uh, uh, as a church, you know, we want to be recommitting our lives to what is most important again. Uh, and that is what, what, we're, what our church is all about, about making disciples of the king together. Making disciples of the king together. We, are, we, are, we exist, we say, to make disciples who are in awe of the gospel who embody the gospel and give their lives away for the gospel. What, what we're doing is we're trying to make disciples of Jesus, followers of Jesus. We're, we're trying to make disciples who are, are living a, a life that is most fulfilling, and that is following the one who, who made them and died for them. And God is most glorified... God is most glorified when we are most satisfied in him. Maybe you've heard someone say that before. Someone famous. Nobody? Never? (laughs) God is most glorified when we are most satisfied in him. And I think God's glory is most vividly put on display when a group of people that are most satisfied in him gather together as one people and reflect his character and so that, that's, what we want to be, that's what we want to be doing again this year, recommitting ourselves to making disciples who are satisfied in Jesus and coming together, telling our story together as a church that is satisfied in, in God. Because um, God displays his glory most vividly, most visibly, most gloriously through a group of people who do that. He does that through your individual life, but as we gather together, even in a small gathering like ours, God's glory is put on display because two have become one, right? Jews and Gentiles and Ephesians have have come together and the walls have been broken down and those who had no business being together before are now together, loving each other, giving their life for each other, bearing one another's burdens, and we're going to be in the book of Revelation, the first part of this year. And I think the book of Revelation can help us be better disciples, better followers of Jesus together, and a healthier church as we read it and as it opens up to us and as Jesus is displayed. And in the first few verses, it shows us how... Uh, uh, what healthy churches value most. What healthy churches value most is the word of their king. Revelation, as soon as I said that, some of you maybe were excited, 
And some of you are like, oh boy, what is, what is about to happen? What's about to take place? So for most of us, Revelation has been a closed book. Is that true or not true? How, when's the last time most of you have done an in-depth study of the book of Revelation? Probably not in any recent time. I know a couple guys who are going through it right now, but I think that's an anomaly. Most, most of us look at the book of Revelation, it's been taught to us in such a way we're like, man, that is more confusing than it is clearing up. Am, am I the only one that thinks that? Okay, yeah, some heads nodding. Yeah, for some of us, it has been a closed book up on the shelf uh, because we think it's too hard to understand. Uh, but that is not why it was written. The book of Revelation was written for our understanding and for our good. And, and, and honestly, you know, some of the symbols are, are hard to understand, but uh, the, one of the reasons they've been confusing to us is because we've tried to interpret them through current day events. And that's not what they were meant to, that's not how it was meant to be done. The book of Revelation was meant to unfold to us in sort of a, a, a cinematic way, full of symbols and, and, and visual stimuli. And yeah, it can be hard to understand some of or all of them exactly as they're meant to, but I, I want to uh, convince us, I, I want the Spirit to convince us that the message of the book is quite simple. The message of the book, and we're going to look at the first seven letters, but the message of the book is pretty simple. Jesus, the King of the universe, is bringing history to its final conclusion according to his purposes. Jesus, the King of the universe, is bringing history to its final conclusion according to his purposes. So, the, and the one who remains faithful to him will be victorious. It, it, it is telling us that the history of the universe and the future of the universe is coming to its final conclusion through Jesus Christ, the one who conquered death, the lamb who was slain, now stands. And, and, and everything that's happening now, has happened, is happening now, and will happen, is coming to its final conclusion for, the pur- for his own purposes. So it was written to churches like ours. It was written to churches just like ours to give confidence, to give them confidence as they, as they live in a world alienated from uh, the rest of uh, humanity, as they live in a world sometimes alienated from fellow citizens of the countries they live in, as they live in a world that sometimes brings persecution on them, as they live in a world that, where, where it feels like defeat, as they live in that world, they're to give confidence that actually that alienation may be proof that they are in tune with the good news of the gospel, that their, their defeat will actually turn into ultimate victory. But they need a God's eye view to see this. So John gets a vision from an angel who got it from Jesus, who got it from God. That's sort of the chain that brought this book to us. God gave to Jesus, you see in verse 1, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants, those those churches. He gave it to an angel to give to John. And this is a God's eye view 
of what's happening past, present, and future. This is a God's eye view of, of day-to-day life. You, you wonder, as, are, are all the events of your life in, uh, in history and in the future, are they just random? Or is God at work in them? This is a God's eye view uh, of, of what's happening. So they can see their day-to-day lives from heavenly perspective. So John writes probably in around 95 AD after uh, Jerusalem was destroyed and the temple of Jerusalem was destroyed, and he writes to some churches in Turkey, seven churches in Turkey. <clears throat> and we just want to walk through uh, four headings of Re- in, in this first few verses of Revelation to, to, to get, a, just get a grasp on what we're reading. What are we reading here? So, what we're reading here because Jesus is the king of the universe, is bringing history to conclusion according to his purposes, and he, and he is showing that through a, a certain kind of, of, of literature. It's um, number one, the unveiling, verses one and two. He says, again, I'll read it again, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant, who bore witness to the word of God, to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. So, one of the reasons it's the revelation is confusing to us is that the genre of literature is unfamiliar to us. It's it's an apocalypse. It's apocalyptic. It's an apocalyptic prophecy. Now, when I say the word the apocalypse, what comes to your mind? Go ahead. You can just say, I mean, we're a small group. Come on. We're not taking ourselves too seriously here. What, come, what is it? Pretty wild. Yeah, yeah. What was that? Zombies. Yeah, that's what I thought of too. Zombie apocalypse, right? It's the end of the world. Uh, and I've never, I haven't, I don't usually watch those kind of shows, but isn't there, there's like some show, The Walking Dead, right? You just think like that's, that's it. That's what the apocalypse is. But the word revelation is actually the word apocalypsis in Greek. It's the apocalypse. And it doesn't first have in mind, well, it doesn't have in mind zombie apocalypse at all. That comes to my mind. But what it does have, it doesn't just first have in mind the end of the world. What it has in mind uh, in, in that word is the unveiling. It's an unveiling, it's a revealing. The biblical word doesn't primarily mean end of the world, uh, has that involved in it. It is, uh, it is unveiling, like, like Christmas morning. You know, all, all the presents have been veiled by wrapping paper. And, and the expectation, you know, is, is building, and we want to know what's behind, uh, behind it. And the big reveal on Christmas morning clears up the mystery. That's what the book of Revelation is supposed to do for us. Clear up the mystery. Revelation was not meant to confuse or scare or cause division. It was given to encourage and to give confidence to those who are going through hardship and alienation, a world dominated by Satan. Those who are about to, and and for those who are about to go through harsh treatment, it was given to give them confidence. So it was given to a bunch of churches who lived in a, a time and a place um, different than ours. 
They knew of, of, of rulers like Nero and Domitian who, who persecuted Christian in, Christians in horrific ways. They knew about that. The, the temple, you know, only 25 years earlier had been sacked in Rome uh, by the Roman uh, general Titus. They, they, they knew all of this, and, and, and they kind of wondered, like, what, what should we expect? And here comes an unveiling, love letters from Jesus, letters from Jesus to his church that they would remain true to the end. Pastor Michael Lawrence uh, talked about this uh, in, in, uh, it gave the example of of, um, soldiers who wrote love letters from the battle lines they they wrote love letters to their uh, to to their darlings to the to the ones they wanted to keep. They didn't want to get dear John letters, and and so they wrote love letters to them to to convince them of uh, of their love and to convince them to to remain true to them that they were coming back safely and 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 that if they came back safely that to, to still hold on to their to their love. And this is similar to what Jesus is doing. This embattled church who's going through tribulation and trial and, and, and hardship and alienation, Jesus is the lover of your soul, is writing letters to the church and saying, hold on, I love you, don't let go. And John is taken up into heaven so that we might see history and the the day-to-day of your life from a a divine transcendent view, perspective. Jesus, the king of the universe, is bringing history to its final conclusion according to his purposes. And those who hold on to the end will be victorious. Those who are faithful to the end. So, this is an unveiling. What is this unveiling? What is, what is it unveiling? What is Revelation unveiling? And, and the primary thing it's unveiling, the primary thing Revelation is about is about victory. And we're going to see in the seven letters to come, this, this word victory is repeated over and over. It's conquer, the one who conquers. To the one who conquers, I will give this. To the one who conquers, I will give this. And, and that word victory in Greek is Nike, right? It's, it's the Greek word Nike. And, and the verb to overcome or to conquer or to triumph is, is used 17 times in Revelation. This is about a victory. Jesus wants you to know that no, no matter what it looks like on the outside, and no matter, no matter how you're feeling or, or what the church looks like um, uh, spatially or temporally, that victory, is, he is winning the victory because he has won the victory. He, you will conquer because he has conquered. And they will conquer. You know, how, how do they conquer in, in this book? How, how do the people of Revelation conquer in this book? They conquer by the blood of the Lamb. Because that is true, because the blood of the Lamb has conquered, they too will conquer, and they are told to conquer. They persevere to the end and get the victory because it has already been won for them. So these letters to the seven churches are churches are messages from Jesus to his church to commend them and to wake them up from their lethargy, from their apathy. 
So they were given to, to seven churches. And I, I just want to, Nancy Guthrie said this, and it stuck with me, that, that the perfect Jesus, the, the one who has conquered, his preferred place is among his imperfect church. You might not feel like you're getting victory in your, in, in your life very much. You might not feel like you're conquering sin or, 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 or uh, that in the end it's going to all work out. But Jesus' preferred place is among you. Not because you're victorious, but because he loves you. And he's, he's, he's writing letters to them to remind them of his love for them, to encourage them, commend them, and to wake them up. So why seven churches? Well, number seven speaks of completeness and perfection. It, it represents God's sovereign plan in its perfection and completeness. So it's, it's given to these specific churches in, in a specific context, but it's, it's also given it then to all churches everywhere. So we can learn something from this. We must understand what he is saying to those churches in particular, but he's, he's, he's given this to us as well. So what is he saying to us? It was given to our church, the branch church as well, to fortify us against any alienation or harsh treatment we might feel that we might receive in this world ruled by Satan. It was given to wake us up out of our lethargy. How does Christ want us to live until his kingdom comes fully? It's not just inaugurated, but is realized. So what does that mean for us as we walk through these letters? Think for ourselves, for yourself. What is, what is Jesus saying to me? What is Jesus saying to us as a church? How, how would he commend us? And, and how would he call us out? Are we living on mission? Like we are servants of the king. I was with uh, Bridget's, we were with Bridget's family this last week and walking with uh, uh, Marty, who is her stepdad, and, and uh a, a guy just um, was walking on the trail, and Marty was like, oh, I thought that guy would come over and talk to us. And uh, He lost his wife, you know, a couple years ago, and I just met him on the trail, and I've, I've taken him to lunch a couple times just to, just to try to encourage him. He's, he's really sad, and I just thought, you know, uh, Mar- Marty is living on mission in, in a way that's pleasing to Jesus. The, those who are downcast and, and poor and have lost a loved one, he's I, would have, I don't know that I would have just taken some guy out to lunch on the trail. But he's, he was doing that. It was a good example to me. So, so what about for us? I, I'm not saying that is what it is for you, but how, what is God waking us up to? What, what, what would God commend of us and our church? So God has, has given us this, is an unveiling to encourage us, to strengthen us, and to, to wake us up to, to the realities of, of, of what is happening. And secondly, it's uh, also a prophecy. This is an, uh, an unveiling, it's an apocalyptic prophecy. In verse, verse 3, it, John writes, Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. So, the the prophecy, one of the ways, 
there are several different ways that people read the book of Revelation. One is that it's all past. One is that it's all future. And, and, there's, and there's in between as well. But I, the way we want to read uh, Revelation is that there are some past events that have happened, that have taken place. Uh, and there are some that are future, that, that will take place. But mostly, Paul is, or John is writing to a bunch of people in their present. How, how will they live in their present? How will they live in, in a world that feels like it's against them or is against them? The, the, the world dominated by Satan is against them. Well, this, this is a prophecy, and, and John is in, in line with the Old Testament prophets. And, and prophecy is not only foretelling events. It's not only foretelling the future. Prophecy primarily in the Bible is just saying what God says about what is, is happening. And this apocalyptic prophecy, one of the reasons it's so confusing, is it comes in symbols. Um, there's beasts and, and dragons and, 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 and prostitutes and, 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 and all of these other kinds of things. And these, these symbols mean something. And where we have gone wrong is, is try to only interpret them through current day events. You know, I remember growing up, Gog and Magog was, was Russia and, and somebody else. And, and, and then, you know, as, as Russia fell off the scene, it became somebody else. And, and well, we just have to, we have to ask ourselves a question. What would that have meant if it can only be interpreted through current events? What would that have meant to the people John was writing to? It, John was writing to them for their, their, their present edification, for their, for their present good, so they might know. And so we're going to have to do a, a little digging in, in Revelation. Now, we aren't going to go through all of Revelation, but as you, as you uh, read Revelation and, and interpret it, you have to first think, what was this for the first readers before we think about what is happening now? So John was in the line of the prophets. He was invited in heaven to write down all that he saw. And so what he did was he, to portray it to, uh, to us, to, to those he was writing to, and, and to, the, to the readers, was to use symbols that they would understand. So John saw heavenly visions that he communicated in earthly language, and he saw earthly events from a heavenly perspective. And that's the main thing I think we should get across when we're reading Revelation, he we are seeing earthly events from a heavenly perspective. And the heavenly perspective is Jesus wins. The church wins in the end. He's not, he's not a loser in, in this. He wins it all. This is an apocalyptic prophecy from God himself. So what is, the, what, is the, what is this book promised? And you, maybe you notice in, in verse 3, it read, blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. Friends, there is a promised blessing from God to those who read this aloud, but especially for those who hear these words and keep them. Hear the words of Revelation and, and keep them. In, in her commentary called Bless, Nancy Guthrie says this, the challenge 
is not primarily understanding the book of Revelation. The challenge is adjusting our lives in light of what the book reveals to us. It's far more challenging to adjust your lives to what the book of Revelation reveals to us than it is to understand it. Because what the book of Revelation reveals to us is that some of us are, are not living like Jesus is king. Sometimes we don't live like Jesus is king. Some of us are living in fear of death. And that is not our story. The king has conquered death. Some, some of us are living in fear of people's opinions of us or, 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 or living for the glory of our own reputation. And Revelation tells us, you live for the glory of the king. It's far more challenging to adjust our lives in light of what the book of Revelation says. You know, and uh, it also adjusts our understanding of the blessed life, right? Hashtag blessed. Uh, too blessed to be stressed. What in the world is that? Well, Jesus started all of this off in Matthew and told us what the blessed life really is. Blessed are those who mourn. Mourn. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. Blessed are, 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 are those who cry. Really? Yes, Really? It's a countercultural understanding of what the blessed life is, what a blessing it is. It is a blessing to live under persecution in China and die for the sake of the king. That's the blessed life. That's countercultural. It Blessing may be in dying in persecution because in it you are faithful and Jesus gives you eternal life to the one who, is, who conquers, to the one who is victorious, that is faithful to the end, even in the face of death, to that person I will give eternal life, eternal riches, the crown of glory. That's the blessed life. Now, Blessing is a major theme in the book of Revelation, repeated seven times, and at the end, chapter 22, verse 7, behold, I'm coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. Luke eleven twenty eight 28 says, blessed are those who hear the word and keep it. That's the blessed life, friends. The blessed life, Revelation will teach us, is, is countercultural. And it comes from hearing and keeping the words of, of God. This book promises us a blessing. And then lastly, this book is, is not only apocalyptic prof prophecy that brings a blessing, it is also a letter. And we alluded to this earlier. It's to the seven churches of Asia. Seven churches of Asia. John uh, writes in verse 4, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come 
and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of kings on earth, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priest to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him and all the tribes of the earth will, be, will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. I'm the Alpha and Omega, says the Lord, <clears throat> who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. So here's a letter from the triune God, the three in one, verses four and five tell us. He's the transcendent God who is in a personal relationship with the seven churches. And John wishes grace and peace to them, but that grace and peace actually is coming from God the Father, God the Spirit, and God the Son. Let's just look at who let's just look at them. God the Father, who is and who was and who is to come. And because we're Trinitarian friends, all all of what applies to God the Father also applies to the Spirit and the Son in terms of in terms of their characteristic, in terms of their character and, and, and traits. So God the Father who was, who is and who was and who is to come is John's understanding of the name of Yahweh. You remember in Exodus, God revealed himself to Moses and to his people as I am who I am. I am, I was, and I will be. God is eternally who he is and who he will be. Never changes. Always has been, always is, and always will be. From age to age, the same. Every person of the God has is eternal, but this is specifically talking about God the Father. The eternal God longs to bring the blessing of grace and peace to the churches. He knows all history. And he's bringing all history to its final end in him. And so he writes his letters to the church to give a God's eye view, a heavenly perspective of the events of earth and and call them to remain faithful and true to him until the end. He's in sovereign control of every moment, of every day. Do you believe that? Friends, this will will bless us when we understand the eternal God has come to us. He has sent his son. The eternal God from age to age has not cursed us. He has not sent us to eternal damnation, but he has promised eternal blessing for all of those who will repent and believe in him. Might this change our anxiety about the future? Keeping this book will, will bless us and it will shape the way that we, we, we live our lives, that we spend our money and our time. It will help us, the, thinking about the eternal God, to, to think about spending our money and time on eternal things, not just temporal things. So, for, for some of us, when this book finally blesses us, it will help us to stop hoarding it 
or it will help us to stop spending it frivolously. This letter is from God the Father, the eternal God. The eternal God who has no needs, who never changes, who has, has, has not failed to meet your needs, to, to be a part of your story, to, to, to care for you and love you. This is will change the way we think about our lives. This letter is from God the Father and the Spirit, from the seven spirits who are before his throne. Remember, we, we said the number seven is uh, probably the most important number in Revelation, used 53 times. It speaks of completeness, perfection, and salvation. And uh, most commentators from Matthew Henry in the 1700s to Tom Schreiner uh, in the 2000s take the seven spirits to refer to the sevenfold spirit uh, of God in Isaiah 11:2, or, or some other analogy of the spirit. The eternal perfect spirit of God is also bringing grace and peace to those who hear and keep the words of this prophecy. The spirit of God, the perfect eternal spirit has come to dwell with those who are trusting in Christ alone. This is God the Father, God the Son, and finally this is God the The Son, God the Spirit, and God the Son. This grace and peace, this blessing of grace and peace is coming from Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ. And and, and there there is a a further threefold designation of him. He is the faithful witness. The King, Jesus Christ, the King of the universe, bears witness to the truth. In John 18, 37, Pilate said to him, So you are king? And Jesus answered, You say that I am king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come to the world, to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. The king only bears witness to the truth, and true subjects of the king love the truth. They will long to sit under the reading and preaching of it. They arrange their lives under it. They bend their wills towards it. They are faithful to it till the end. Jesus is the faithful witness. So friends, bear witness to the truth of who he is and what he says. This is, this is what he calls, this is what the blessed life is, bearing witness to the truth of the king who is the faithful witness to the truth. This faithful witness to the truth is also the key figure in the story of the truth. The, the story of the truth is the story of a God who created everything, who made a perfect world in, in, in which his creation was meant to worship him and him alone. This temple, this earth was a, a temple for his glory and his little image bearers, his little icons were meant to, were meant to go and, and work and worship him. That story turns though, when the, when, the, when the icons want to worship themselves. 
They believed that the creator was withholding something from them when he said, don't eat of the fruit of the tree. And they turned against him. But instead of finally cursing them, instead of finally pushing them out of Eden to, in, into hell, he, he makes a promise that one will come and crush the serpent's head. One will come and, and reverse the curse. This one will be the, the, the first Adam. I mean, this one will be the second Adam to replace the first Adam. This one will be the firstborn from the dead. He is the head of the church. And if you follow Jesus as king, you follow the only one who went into battle with death face to face and won. He died but rose again. He's the firstborn to rise from the dead, but he is not the last. You will rise too. He is the first to rise from the dead to die no more, but he is not the last. You will rise too. He is the first to rise from the dead, the pleasure of God, but he is not the last. You will rise too. He's the firstborn from the dead, and all who follow him in faith and repentance will rise from the dead again. He's the firstborn from the dead. So you followers of the king will rise from the dead and die no more. You who, you who have put your faith in the firstborn from the dead, the head of the church, you will rise. You will rise. This is Jesus, who's the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the, of the earth. The ruler of the kings of earth. Jesus is, because he rose from the dead, because he conquered death, he rules the rulers. He's the king of kings. He's not first among equals. He's the one true ruler that all other rulers derive their authority from. He's the, the one true king that all other ki good kings point to. He is utterly sovereign and transcendent over all. And he gives these letters to his, his church to say, it's going to be okay. This is the king of kings. This is the kind of king that you want to follow. But not just follow. This is the kind of king your heart longs to worship. You've been called to worship other things last year, this morning. You've been called to worship other things besides God, haven't you? Your heart has gone after them. And we sing the song, uh, you know, bind our hearts to worship. You know, bring, bring us back. Tune our hearts to sing your praise. Because our, our hearts are longing to worship other things. But the true longing at the bottom of all of that is because you are made to worship this king. We're, we were made to worship, and in the end, in Revelation 4 and 5, you can, if, if you want to read that this week, you can see what true worship at the end of the age will look like. It'll look like every, people from every tribe, tongue, and nation singing, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. They will bow down, and they're going to take their crowns off their heads, and they're going to set them at the feet of Jesus. They're going to say, worthy you are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. 
And all the tears are going to be wiped away when, when we find and we see the one who, who was finally worthy to take the stroll and to open it. Our hearts long for that kind of worship. Right? We, we long in, in this little assembly where we can barely hear each other sing for this room to be filled to the brim and hearing the chords of heaven ring out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. Our hearts long for that. And God is going to restore that worship. The scriptures say that, you know, once we were enemies of God, but now, and we were out without hope and without God in the world. And the story of the Bible, like I said, was the story that we were meant for worship and it was broken, but now God is returning it. And here at the end of all time, here at the end of the days, here even, even as the, the church is almost destroyed and alienated, God is going to restore worship again. And how does he do that? How does he restore worship to him? This faithful witness, this firstborn from the dead, and the ruler of the kings of earth, how will he do that? To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom of priests to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. The way he is doing that is through his love and through his, his freeing us by his blood, through the, the second exodus, through bringing us through the, the, the waters of Egypt onto the shores of Jerusalem. So how will citizens in Babylon, who, uh, people who are living in Babylon but are actually citizens of New Jerusalem, how will they, how, how will they worship? It's by him, his love freeing us from our sins through his death. Friends, his love is not sentimental or sappy. It's decisive and sacrificial. It took action. That is what love is. That's what love does. It sacrifices itself for the good of others. It's the result. And the result was that he made us a kingdom and priests to our God. A, a place. A kingdom is a place and a people. We, we are the kingdom, friends. We, we, are, we are the kingdom here on, on earth. And finally, one day we will have a, a, a place to live and we will see God face to face. But right now, we are an outpost of that kingdom here in Corvallis. And we are priests, those who mediate between God and men. Priests represent men to God. This is what we were meant to do all along. Eden is restored to something better. And when we talk about a culture of discipleship, this is what we're talking about, being what God has made us to be. Becoming who we are. And he's actually done all of this for us. He deserves all the glory, dominion forever and ever. Amen. Friends, but that is not all. We're an outpost of the kingdom here. We, we, are, we are, are, are God's priests. And we are, we're part of this ministry of reconciliation. But there is one day coming. In verse 7, he's coming in the clouds. The faithful witness to the truth. The Son of Man is coming. 
and every eye will see him. And those who look on him in, in love and in reverence and repentance and trust will see him as the son of man that will save him. And those who reject him, those who want nothing to do with him, they, they will look on him, they have pierced, and they will, they will mourn. And friends, that's why we take the good news to our friends. That's why we take the good news to the uttermost parts of the earth, like, like, like India and like Indonesia and, and the other places that haven't heard about Jesus is because he is coming in the clouds. And these dear friends can look on him as the Messiah. They can look on him as the, as the one who is bringing good news. But all who reject him, they will mourn. Every eye will see him. Dear friends, he is the Alpha, the Omega, says the Lord. He's the first and the last. He who was and is, who and is to come, he's the Almighty. He, he is the one that's bringing history to its final end. Revelation is the apocalyptic, prophetic letter from the triune God unveiling Jesus as the sovereign king, controlling history and the future. And he will bless the churches and individuals that hear and keep these words. He will, he will bless you, dear friend. So what does the word of Revelation have to say to us? What does the king have to say to the branch in Corvallis in 2023? Hold on. I'm coming. Remain faithful to the end. I'm coming soon. Friends, what appears to be defeat will end up in victory. God will be victorious in the end. The church will win in the end as, as individuals we have to ask the question, are we living for our own glory and reputation or agenda or for the king's glory, for his reputation, for his agenda as a church? Are we living for that? The one who, the one who conquers will be victorious. The, the one who is faithful to the end will be victorious. Hold on. Dear friends, remain faithful. The, the Lord Jesus Christ has, has won the victory for us. He will come soon. We will see him soon as he comes in the clouds. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your kindness through this revelation, through this book. And, and though it can be scary to read, as we, as we go through these first three chapters, God, I pray that our hearts would be drawn towards this, this, this unveiling of, of who you are, of what you have done, and what you are doing. It would give us great confidence that our story is not yet finally written, that all the heartache and, and pain that we're experiencing now, the alienation, the even because of our own sins that we're experiencing now, is not the final story because Jesus, who has conquered, will finally conquer. We will be, we will be with him. We will see him as he is. Help us to, help our hearts to be drawn towards him, to trust him, to love him. And even as we turn to the Lord's table, help us to remember that this final victory ends in a meal. Let our hearts long for that day when we sit down to a meal with the king of the earth who is our brother, our friend, our husband, our God, our king. God, we pray all of these things in your name. In Jesus' name, amen.